Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Trull, your host, and today I will talk to Hannah Wallerstein and Jordan Osserman, this time not about a book actually, but about a special issue of the journal The Psychoanalytic Study of the Child, titled Transgender Children, From Controversy to Dialogue, which they edited and which came out, I think, last year, although I'm not not really sure about that. I think it's end of last year, but the volume's this year or something. The subject's very interesting, and uh, it's also a very interesting format they've chosen uh, to approach it, but you'll hear more about that in a bit. Let me first introduce the two of them. Hannah Wallerstein is a psychologist and psychoanalyst in private practice in Ann Arbor, Michigan, She's faculty at the Michigan Psychoanalytic Institute, adjunct faculty at the Austin Riggs Center, and clinical supervisor for the CCNY doctoral program. Hannah has written about gender identity and transgender phenomena, psychosis and historical trauma, and most recently, the collapse between biology and ontology and psychoanalytic thinking on the body. And Jordan Osserman is a lecturer in the Department of Psychosocial and Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex. UK, and a clinical trainee with the Site for Contemporary Psychoanalysis in London. Jordan's current research involves an ethnographic study of the UK's only publicly funded clinic for children struggling with gender identity, and his book, uh, which is out last year, I think, uh, Circumcision on the Couch, the Cultural, Psychological, and Gender Dimensions of the World's Oldest Surgery, was published by Bloomsbury Press. And Jordan, as some of you might also know, is a host uh, of New Books in Psychoanalysis as well. So it's really nice to have him as an interview partner here. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. And and nice to experience uh, being a guest as opposed to a host this time. Yeah, definitely. Although, although this is not a book, I really wanted to do this interview because um, I think... The topic is is very important, obviously, on on a lot of our uh, you know minds and clinicians' minds at the moment. But um, I think what makes 
the special issue you edited very um well very important is that you actually chose a very different format than we're used to so it's not contributors you asked to um you know wrote a paper each and uh, there's no sort of interaction between them but you actually had them interact could you tell us a bit about um what you decided to do uh with the special issue and and also maybe a bit why you decided to do it that way who wants to start <laughs> hannah do you want to I, kick off yeah i mean i can say something about um the basic reasoning we went for a dialogue and then maybe jordan you can share more about the specific structure um sure that makes sense. So, you know, in terms of the topic of trans children, we felt that there was just so much polarization within the field. I mean, there is in general and psychoanalytic thinking about gender, but it's even more so when it comes to thinking about children. And, and also, I think there's more thorny aspects of it that are actually just quite difficult to think through, like around medical intervention or around adult responsibility, these questions that are you know, difficult. And given that, uh, I think we felt both for our own interest and also just in terms of intervening on how split off the different ideas can be, that it made sense to bring people's thinking into a more live exchange with one another than simply having papers that were formed in isolation. Um, mm -hmm, yeah, I mean, I suppose I would add, um, but partly, I mean, one of the ways that Hannah and I got to speaking about this is I had uh, really admired a piece that she'd written um, in the same journal for, uh, that she co-written rather, um, in the same journal um, for an earlier issue on trans kids, an earlier special section uh, several years before we worked on this one. Um, and that was, uh, uh, as Hannah was saying, it was kind of a, a series of articles by clinicians um, about, uh, you know, their views on on trans kids and, and how to work with them. And um, it, it, it seemed to make sense that the next step or kind of evolution in um, that kind of conversation was actually to stage um, a live conversation where people could um, actually, you know, confront one another with their ideas, um, discuss their differences and, and have to think on their feet a little bit. Um, so really... Uh, I believe, Hannah, right, you were sort of uh, asked by the journal editor, um, would you be interested in, in doing another, in working on a, a new section on trans kids? And then we kind of brainstormed what might be an appropriate, um, you know, way to do it a bit differently than, than, than how it was done previously um, and, and came up with this idea. Also, it was kind of what we were more or less in the midst of lockdown at the time, right? But that kind of I guess so, presented yeah. the opportunity of using Zoom, or we'd all become right. more comfortable with Zoom at that point. Good point, right. yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask, uh, so the, the history uh, to this special section of the journal is actually, that you mentioned this, right? It, there was an issue that came out in 2014, I think, mm -hmm. that had pretty much, this, was focusing on the same topic, on trans kids, right? That's so, right. Maybe, maybe you could say a bit more about, in, from your perspective, what, what has changed since then? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> so much and so little in, in some ways. Um, I mean, I suppose uh, at the time that that first issue was published, um, it probably seemed already like 
trans kids were such a sort of topical uh, thing in the news that people were discussing. But then by the time we got around to working on this, it was, you know, daily that you, you read headlines about um, people's, you know, political and clinical views on, on young people, you know, struggling with questions about their gender identity, uh, which has only intensified, I mean, since we worked on this. So, I mean, one of the things that we discussed in the introduction um, is uh, the context in the UK. And at the time of writing the introduction, um, there was a high court decision which affected the ability of young people to access puberty blockers. After that introduction was published, that high court decision was overturned. And then, of course, in the US context, um, there's been all kinds of um, issues around uh, states criminalizing um, the medical practitioners who offer basically health care to um, young uh, people with gender dysphoria. So day after day, um, the news around this subject just seems to intensify and, and also the polarization around it. It's really interesting because you mentioned something in the introduction as well This that sort of relates to that. Um, as you were trying to, you know, to gather a group of, of thinkers, of, of uh, uh, clinicians, scholars about this issue, um, there were actually some difficulties, right, you're describing. Like you, you approached some people, you wanted to get someone actually from the Gender Identity Development Service, I think, uh, in the UK also. But um, many people felt like they, like they either felt too vulnerable to address the issue publicly, uh, felt like, I think you mentioned that some felt like they didn't want to be in discussion with some of the other people that you had asked. So that alone was very interesting to read. And, and you making, making actually that process public was, was very interesting to read. Can you, can you say a bit more about, um, about that process of actually finding a group <laughs> of people willing to talk to each other publicly? Yeah, I mean, it was, I'm trying to think what to say about it. It certainly was difficult. And, you know, the, the worries that people raised were also understandable, given how, um, how charged the topic can be. And, I mean, I think we tried to steer clear, or it was clear to us that we wanted both a spectrum of perspectives and also to not have any one that was, you know, explicitly transphobic or, or you know, we steered clear of what we felt like were going to be disrespectful uh, positions. And and yet, even with that, um, there was still a lot, you know, as you said, there were people who felt like they couldn't speak with other people on the panel because they were too anti-trans or, or things like this. I, I don't know, Jordan, if you want to say more about Tavistock in particular, given your connection there. And the concern. I mean, yeah, I would just say, yeah, recruitment, it was probably the biggest hurdle of the entire project. And uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about, you know, um, the particularities of, uh, you know, what people were going through when they when they said no. But but just to say, I mean, the you know, the Tavistock is under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Um, and, uh, in addition to that, um, uh, it's a place where people are working very long hours and don't have very much time. So, you know, um, it, it wasn't surprising, but it was, you know, unfortunate that we, that was one of the places where we really hoped to get, um, a contributor and, and weren't successful. Um, although, 
um, uh, we did um, kind of part of the introduction was putting a lot of thought into, as you said, the questions about why recruitment was so hard and also just, you know, what is the political context um, around um, trans issues and um, its relationship to psychoanalysis uh, in the UK. Right, right. Be before we get more into, into you know, the, the question of why this issue tends to blow up so so much, um, let's, let's maybe first talk about who you did actually get to, uh, to um, be involved in, in this process. Um, you have four scholars who are, who are involved in this, right? Four people who are pretty well known for um, having researched uh, trans issues and, and um, issues about trans children. Could you maybe um, tell us a bit about um, who you got and what sort of perspectives they, these people represent? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll mention too, Hannah, maybe you could fill in for the other two. So we, um, uh, I mean, one thing I should say off the bat is, although we've just talked about how difficult recruitment is, in no way is that meant to imply that any of the people that we worked with were in any way kind of second choice. They're an absolutely phenomenal um, group of people uh, that we got involved. Um, But it, it just took a lot of time to finally secure them. Um, so uh, two of them, one, um, some listeners might be familiar with Oren Goslan. Uh, he has written, uh, he's published quite extensively on trans issues. Um, he's got a book called Transsexuality and the Art of Transitioning, a Lacanian Approach. Um, and he's a psychoanalyst um, working in Toronto. Um, and although he does um, have a kind of Lacanian direction. Um, he's also kind of, I think, a bit more eclectic than that. Um, and then I suppose I'll also just mention um, Tobias Wiggins. Um, so he was the one um, non-psychoanalyst, uh, um, although he does have uh, quite an interest in, in the clinic. Um, he's a academic and assistant professor of women's and gender studies um, at Athabasca University um, in Canada. Um, and he's published quite extensively in the field of trans studies um, and particular kind of links between um, thinking around uh, issues of transphobia and psychoanalysis. Um, and uh, I think was particularly useful as someone who was able to articulate perspectives kind of from the area of trans studies um, that uh, often takes a more critical stance towards psychoanalysis, which is something we thought was quite important to include. And then, so the other two, um, so Laurel Silber is a clinical psychologist, a psychoanalytic clinical psychologist who works primarily with children in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. And, you know, she was, as it turns out, the only child analyst that we were able to get um, who works with not just adolescents, but also children. Um, and she has been a longtime advocate of child therapy, has written a lot about various aspects to it. And more recently had written a paper um, that we both quite liked on gender variance in children and how she thinks about it and works with it clinically. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it, it was very important to have her voice as someone who comes from working with children more experientially than the others. Um, and she provided a very useful vignette, which we might talk about um, Along other things. And then the last person we had was Eve Watson, who's a psychoanalyst and lecturer in Dublin, Ireland. 
um, who has done a lot of work in various aspects of sexuality studies and psychoanalysis from a Lacanian perspective. Um, and she's a co-author of a book, I believe, with Noreen Gifney, um, and had written herself a book chapter about um, child trans issues around children and thinking, uh, again, we thought in interesting ways around um, around gender and children and um, I guess parental fantasies and how that that plays out in relation to positions people take up in relation to children. Right, right. So, and thanks for 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 mentioning all four of them. Uh, and and I think it's um, just to say a thing about the process. You you asked uh, all four of them to write a very short, very brief paper. Um, sort of highlighting their thoughts on on trans kids and on working with trans kids, but also on some some theoretical implications uh, of working with trans. Um, and then and then you you facilitated a Zoom a, a live discussion that you then transcribed and and edited, right? And I I wanted to get right into some of the material that showed up um, in the short papers because what was very interesting to me is actually that, um, for example, Laurel Silver's uh, paper, but also and more explicitly, um, Wiggins's paper, sort of have an approach to the topic that sort of turns around the the, the focus. Uh, sort of, I guess, in a way, uh, away from trans kids to the clinicians working with them, or, or I guess you could also say to the parents being confronted with gender questioning kids, um, and and also I guess to to a certain extent on what what adults use use children for, I guess you could say, in more implicit ways than you know actively actively abusing or misusing them. Uh, but more unconsciously putting fantasies into them. And I thought there was a very, very important issue, not just in relation to trans kids, but to trans people in general, how they're used by the public as, you could say, containers for certain issues that all of us have with our gender, um, or I guess just issues with sexuality as well. Um, and I thought it was very important to to sort of make that make that change of perspective explicit. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that um, because I think, um, in some sense, all of the contributors at one point or another, I think, made made a point around that the way in which children become, as you said, a kind of container for people's anxieties, and um, you know, it's it's as it's often parodied like this idea of some um, terrified adults, you know, screaming, think of the children or save the children. And, and obviously when they say that, they're not really thinking about children. Um, and yeah, I think that was a, one of the useful kind of contributions um, that, that, that came out of this dialogue. Um, that, that is, it's quite surprising the degree, the degree to which it's often missing when you hear some psychoanalysts um, speak about trans issues that, um, that there often is not that much kind of, of a critical perspective of, um, you know, what might be my own investment in this panic or anxiety about what's happening to the kids. Um, you, you don't hear that as much as you should. So it was nice that 
um, it, you know, that, that became a, something that our contributors focused on. What I thought was very interesting in that respect also, and, and that's something that's probably maybe just closer to my mind, um, as a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, is how, how objectified the discourse around trans people and trans kids specifically tends to be. And, and I'm wondering if it, if it has to do with the fact that it's, there's, there's medicine involved lots of the time right there's there's medication involved there's surgery involved and this whole apparatus uh, in the background of of um, medical interventions i don't know there seems to be a lot of regulatory anxiety um, that stems from that specific context in which a lot of these issues uh, um a lot of discussion around these issues tends to originate from, right? The medical medical perspective. What did you mean by objectified? So I'm clear on um, that. Um, you know, just just what we were just talking about that there's so little talk, even within psychoanalysis, at in some accounts uh, about. Um, counter transfer tra transferential reactions or even the analyst's own transference that they bring to you know to to the issue of trans um, and and there's there's in some accounts I, I guess a sense um, not not in this issue right I'm not saying in this issue but in general there seems to be a sense of we get we get to talk about trans issues or trans people from an outside perspective and ob objectifying them in a sense um, of you know uh, asking what you know what's wrong with them like sort of pathologizing them and and I think it's it's a merit of this issue that that doesn't happen as much. Yeah, I mean, I, is, I, is that? I yeah. yeah, that is clear. And I, I mean, there's, I think there's so many different contributions to that, but certainly the medical question is a part of that. I mean, there's, I think, so much anxiety linked to gender more generally, right? But both anxiety about bodily transformation and intervention, and then also the question of um I think it does raise a lot of questions. And some of them, I think, are are also understandable and important in terms of responsibility with children, right? And like where, how does one think about that when it comes to uh -huh. Uh -huh. altering uh -huh. the body? And and I think it does raise the anxiety quite high, um, you know, for so many reasons, but I think you're right to point to the, the piece that involves medication or bodily intervention, anything that alters the physicality of the person seems to heighten all of the worries, say, about responsibility um, when it comes to kids, which are already there and already part of the picture and all the ways that children are used. There's actually a very interesting point, uh, Hannah, that I wanted to bring up in uh, from the discussion, right, from the, from the transcribed discussion, um, in which uh, sort of th there's a point in which most of the contributors sort of agree uh, around the issue of regret right that regret in itself is not is not a bad thing and and can sort of cannot be um, omitted anyway and and uh, regret is, is part of the picture right and you bring up this point of well there's actually an issue about that with kids 
because kids are so dependent on their environment, on, on their objects, right? On their re very real objects. And kids sort of, I guess, um, how, to, how to put that? Get to feel very intense emotions, make very intense demands, and sort of, um, I guess, have, have the luxury of not uh, having direct results from that right away right i mean that's that's pretty different to, to adult life um and and you bring that up actually and you bring that up in a very uh, i think an amazing picture you know if if a baby for example had had their way it might kill like all the people surrounding it in a moment of fury and and it's good that that's not not a possibility so and i think those two sides, right, are, are very important in the discussion how we might go forward, right? One thing being like, you know, regret it. Like I call this sort of a, a, a pessimistic generativity that psychoanalysis in general brings to the table, I think, um, saying, you know, we can't omit regret. It's, there's, there's always going to be some regret. And I think that's also a very important point in some of the papers. And on the other hand, the dependency of children, right, and and sort of being entrusted to to their real objects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think neither side can be total, right? Of course, like that. Uh, it would be awful if children were given no choice about anything and weren't able to make any decisions about themselves and their bodies, etc. And given free reign, also would be a very terrifying picture for a child as well. Um, but the question, but it doesn't lead to clear answers about what does that mean then about how does, how do adults help and manage making these decisions about things with children? And um, it's not, it doesn't lead to any clear cut answers if that, if that makes sense around where those uh -huh. lines are. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I was thinking as I was actually rereading the dialogue before um, we, we we began this interview um, that actually it it seemed as if there there was a lot of great material that um, the contributors offered around this question of regret. I really liked. I think Eve put it as um, regret is the super ego's fuel um, and one of the most useless affects. Um, which uh, has really resonated with me, um, you know, beyond thinking about trans kids, um, just in general, thinking about clinical work. Um, but when Hannah put that question to our contributors about how do we think about the, the fact that perhaps one of the, one of the um, necessities of what it means to be a child is to be protected from a certain degree of responsibility for your actions, to not be responsible for your actions, um, and how do we think about that in relationship to um, medical care and, and um, you know, what kids are and aren't able to do with their bodies? Uh, I think there was a bit more hesitation and less participation in that question precisely because of how difficult it was, which is not to say that it, you know, was pro or anti the question of offering puberty blockers or whatever else, but it was, I think it was quite a difficult one to think about. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and I think the tension also comes out in in the issue of of childism, right? Um, Wiggins as well as Silber used this this concept uh, that's that was coined by Elizabeth Young Brühl about, um, as I was saying before, how children are used 
by adults um, for their own unconscious purposes. But what that actually means in the consulting room or in work with trans kids um, automatically is a, is a completely different or is a is an issue that's not defined by the concept, right? Because you could make the point that um, some people use trans kids, you know, to to further their own, um, um, I guess, idealization of of fluidity or of of not being fixed to gender and and you know the free choice of kids and whatever and and then some some other kids would would be, would probably be used uh, for a very rigid gender quote unquote gender critical agenda right so i guess the the concept doesn't really explain the phenomenology then mm-hmm. mm. i mean i i did find something oren said really fascinating on this subject too just as a kind of observation of a historical shift that that traditionally psychoanalysis was very concerned with um, people, uh, you know, kind of traditional psychoanalysts were concerned with people fitting into the right gender category. And in fact, you know, you have figures like Robert Stoller, who enabled people to undergo medical transition precisely so that if they didn't fit into the sex they were assigned at birth, then they would fit more properly into the gender they transitioned to. So that was the kind of traditional setup. And nowadays, you have psychoanalysts who are very against um, people transitioning, who instead seem to sort of fetishize gender fluidity as a kind of ideal that kids and adults ought to be comfortable with being in between. Um, Just a kind of, yeah, it really reframed things for me. The the way that, you know, psychoanalysis has moved possibly from one fetish to another. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's also like, in addition to it, any position being able to be used in that way, that's much more about the parents or the clinician's fantasies or needs than the child's. It also, sorry to me how to put this, it's also not clear in any one position. Like the answer also is not then having no, uh, thoughts or positions oneself. In other words, the difference also between figuring out what is using a child in the service of one's own needs and responsible caregiving is also very hard to sort out in addition to any one position. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Being, you know, that it, it's, it's, it's multiply hard <laughs> to sort out how yeah. to not, uh, you know, use children essentially for adult needs. And and you wonder to what extent that always happens, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it, to to what to what degree? It, I guess would be the question that has to be raised. But there's probably always an element of that in every interaction of caretaker and children, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot has to do with the fixity of what the fantasies are. In other words, I mean, maybe this is more so with parents than with analysts. But I think there always has to be fantasies and projections onto children. One has to have some way of imagining them and their future, but whether those can then be altered in response to what a child says, you know, what they communicate, or whether those become so fixed and needed that they maintain. I, I think that, in my mind, is where the difference is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, this is a kind of large reflection, but this really is also the core of, in some ways, strikes at the heart of psychoanalysis, because this, this essentially was, you know, Freud's 
discovery of infantile sexuality was precisely this, this, you know, dealing with this issue of the fact that it was blatantly obvious that uh, children have a sexuality and yet um, adults and caretakers and, you know, parents were uh, not willing to see what was right in front of them. Right. And that uh, due to their own projections or unwilling, you know, it, investment in protecting the innocence of the child. Um, so in some uh-huh. ways it circles uh-huh. back to the whole, to the whole purpose of the field. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think it's very interesting in, in, uh, in in the process of of the discussion, uh, and you also point this out in the introduction. There's sort of a, um, not really a parapraxis, but a, a, a misunderstanding that that hap- a very subtle misunderstanding that happens between um, two of the contributors. Um, there's Laura Silva uh, contributes a vignette right to the discussion. She talks about a child. Um, who in in very difficult circumstances, very difficult uh, inner family circumstances, utters the phrase, as I think as a toddler, I a boy. So the kid specifically does not say I'm a boy, it says I a boy. And I think you rightly point out in your your, um, uh, introduction and and your summary of of the discussion, how there's a world of difference between those two utterances and uh, it gets taken up by Wiggins in, in later on in the discussion uh, saying that the, the kid, he understood, the kid said, I'm a boy, which is very different from what, what, what was, uh, you know, what was said, that the kid said, I, a boy. And there's like just a very, very minor, very subtle difference in that. In, in, in that uh, in that sound, but a world of difference in meaning, possibly we don't know, right? And that seems to relate, or at least to me, seems to relate to to some of the issues that were raised also in the papers. Um, I guess mostly from a Lacanian point of view, um, you know the the gap, the gap that 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 starts to open as soon as language is acquired. As soon as as soon as we leave, like this sort of, um, I guess the, the the natural natural development, if there is ever any such thing. But uh, as soon as as language is introduced, that goes out the window, right? And the world of meaning opens up. Yeah, um, I, I imagine we both have things to say about this because I think it was kind of almost like the pivot of well, of our introduction to the to the dialogue and became quite a significant moment that we realized um, just had a lot to say about the different tensions uh, throughout the dialogue. It was, as you were saying, this, this kind of misunderstanding, although it was a productive misunderstanding, I think, where Laurel discusses a child who, um, the, 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 the details are highly disguised to protect confidentiality, but basically the child loses their father under quite traumatic circumstances um, is hearing a lot about their father, uh, you know, through the family, um, through family discussions, and at some point, um, and has never met the father um, uh, because the the father died before the child was born. But at some point, starts to utter the phrase "I a boy," and um, and Laurel basically, you know, wanted to say that this phrase required unpacking um, for its many possible meanings. 
um, some of which might relate to the, the child's potential identification with the father or wish to see the father or mourn the father or whatever else. And uh, Tobias um, uh, called attention to some of the dangers of this way of thinking around how it might presume that if this kind of trauma is worked through, that um, that would resolve any of the issues around gender that the child might be communicating. So a sort of pathological view of transness could be at play here, um, or there's a danger of it being at play because it could, the, the idea could be this child is experiencing some gender confusion, but once it works out its problems with its father, the child will identify as, as the girl that it was assigned at birth. Um, but of course, what we pointed out was uh, when Tobias was talking about this, he was using the phrase, I'm a boy, whereas uh, Laurel quoted the child saying, I a boy. And we thought that actually these two phrases also are quite different. As you said, you know, there's a, there's, there's a mere difference of one letter, but I'm a boy is something that is much more... Uh, recognizable, you know, to do a, a statement of identity. Uh, it's an I am this, which could be counterposed to I am not that. Um, it's kind of more easily politicized. So there's a lot of other kind of ways that we can understand that phrase than I, a boy, which is a lot more enigmatic. And so in some sense, we thought that just speaks to um, larger questions around what is the role of psychoanalysis in thinking about gender um, and uh, in what ways should psychoanalysis um, be tasked with kind of unpacking the multiple meanings of a gender identification versus, you know, what's the role of clinical work in, um, you know, supporting um, someone's gender identity, you know, once they've declared it um, and, and helping them, um, you know, experience it in a tolerable way um, in a society that might not be particularly tolerant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, I would just add, I think this is just other words around sort of the same issue, but I think every, you know, it's also a technical question around how to both take really any patient's words, but certainly a trans patient's words, both seriously and um, as open to possibilities of meaning, sort of holding them open and taking them seriously, which I think every contributor speaks to in a variety of ways. I think Tobias at some point has a really nice language about can affirmation not be foreclosure, but the affirmation of existence, which I think is about taking something seriously as it is. And, there, and that Laurel certainly, I think really everyone has different ways of talking about this tension 
you know, it can, other words that can be around it are things like taking something at face value. But, um, but I think that can be a bit, or at least can, can be heard as a bit dismissive um, of that register too, uh, which is how someone means something when they say it, right? Uh, right, right. I, I just, yeah, I like how you put that, Hannah, because that is, I think, one of the issues is when people are, I think, concerned about psychoanalysis being, you know, undermining of someone. It is precisely this idea that, oh, by listening to the unconscious, you're trying to catch someone out in, you know, something and, and prove that they didn't really mean what they what they intended. But I think this idea of being open to the possibilities that uh, appear in someone's speech is, is a nicer way of putting what the, what the project is about, right? Which is, it is absolutely taking them at their word, but um, acknowledging that those words can mean many things. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, Hannah, please go ahead. Just one more thing about that is I do think it's difficult technically to hold both of those, right? To really take someone's word seriously and hold space for all the potential meanings. I don't think that's an easy task, that, that's all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, while you were talking, I was just thinking, I think it's... Uh, it's Oren who brings brings that up, uh, Oren Gosland, the the image of of the Russian doll, right? That you you unpack layers of layers, and then you get to a kernel, you get to something that that is that is true and authentic. And I think that's an illusion that psychoanalysis tries to do away with. But that, I mean, we see analysts, and we I guess we see ourselves to an extent fall into that trap also all the time, right? We want to get to something solid to hold on to. Um, and and what you what you were just saying is actually instead of narrowing it down to a kernel, uh, I guess a better approach might be to opening it up, right? To not to make it more narrow, but to actually to enrich enrich uh, uh, an utterance with meaning, right? It might mean that, but it, it but it means a lot a lot more different things as well. It's over determined, right? Yeah, I, I really like that. I mean, it um, it makes me think of, I think Laurel points to this as well about how with children, that's, it's always true. And it's all the more true with children who have um, different levels of a grasp of language and can have less capacity to say all that they mean, even then, then it, you know, none of, none of us can ever say all that. I don't even know what that statement means, but children have even more of a need to have a kind of expanded listening, right? That that all that's trying to be said in whatever words one is able, a child is able to use to say them can can be heard. There's even more of a risk, in other words, of of keeping it um, not expanded. Yeah, I mean, I think something you you pointed out, Hannah, in the in the introduction is that also while. A, a lot of us are familiar with this sort of Lacanian emphasis on um, the ultimate kind of, um, you know, um, barriers to complete understanding or the impossibility of, you know, um, totally uh, get, getting what something means or the opacity, you know, of, of every person. Um, there is also the importance of particularly a young person um, feeling that they can be understood, um, that, that, you know, their caregivers are making an attempt to translate and uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. contain, or however you want to put it, um, what it is that they're communicating. And I think that's something, yeah, that Laurel was emphasizing as well, that part of 
why she really makes a strong case for play therapy as a kind of dying art um, that uh, mm-hmm. is, can be really, really fundamental in um, allowing, you know, something that a child is unable to express to find some, some means of, of having expression and being understood. I, I just thought it might not even be about, about, um, you know, actual, actually needing to be understood, but I guess needing to get a sense that there's someone's trying to understand, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a better way of putting it. And and what I was just thinking about, uh, and I think this also came up a lot in 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 the discussion, but also in some of the of the papers, um, the problem of abstraction, right? Because um, whenever we talk about trans people, or especially I think trans children, there's always you know this. I guess almost like a stereotype, the trans kid. And I mean, clinical experience and especially psychoanalytic clinical experience tells us there's no such thing. We, we're like the, sing, the single case study, I think is something really important that we could bring to the table of, of this like increasingly polarized field, right? Or, and, and I think it's polarized or the possibility for it to be so polarized is exactly because we, we tend to talk so much in abstractions and it doesn't do justice. It doesn't do justice to, to all the single subjectivities that we encounter in the consulting room. There's no such thing as the trans kid. It's such a good point. And it makes me wonder why I mean, I'm thinking about your point about how that contributes to the polarization, because, of course, it's easy to have clean ideas, I guess, when they're about generalities mm-hmm. as opposed to the particular. And I don't I wonder why that is that that happens more in this area. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, yeah, we did try to highlight that, you know, our wager is that this kind of question can only be approached through, you know, the singular experience of each case. But I guess, I mean, one of the things we also touched on was just how um, the experience of gender and the struggle to inhabit a gender um, is both something very universal that I think all of us have experience with. Maybe some of us are less willing to acknowledge it than others, but nevertheless, I think it's a universal problem and yet um, also extremely personal for each individual. So it's that kind of tension that I think contributes to this difficulty in thinking about um, well, this temptation to overgeneralize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think about, well, I guess two related thoughts. I was thinking back to the beginning of our discussion around the, the lawsuits everywhere and just how it's such a different way of thinking because when you turn to the law, you're making, you know, generalities <laughs> with a capital G, you know, in the most, most severe form of that and that it is such a different uh, framework thinking about every individual as in their specificity than than rules under the law um, yeah I mean I, I just I think it might be worth mentioning I just found this really fascinating in the um, just the way in which that kind of trying to project into the mind of the child is at play when it comes to you know people in the field of the law trying to decide on these things with with the UK High Court decision, which has since been overturned. But 
the, the reasoning of the judges for why people under the age of 16 should not access puberty blockers was not simply that they, they said that those young people didn't have the capacity to consent. But what they didn't have the capacity to consent to was not simply puberty blockers, but in the judge's reasoning, it was the rest of the transition that awaited them if they began puberty blockers. So it was this very strange kind of temporal reasoning of once they start on this path, they're inevitably going to carry on. That was what the judges believed. And so um, they they cannot consent to this future that awaits them, even though it hasn't yet happened. Um, and I, I just found that so fascinating as kind of the, the, the problem that the law constructed for itself, um, which seems a bit out of touch with with, with precisely the reality of each individual child who's navigating this question. I was just thinking, and, and I hope you don't, you don't perceive this as overly cr uh, critical, but I think the, the special issue that you, you edited is sort of, I mean, we talk about this, this issue of abstraction a lot, but what, like, why did you decide to, I mean, not have case presentations in the special issue? Because that would have been right. Then we would have had singularities that that might have been discussed, which would have been very interesting as well. I think. Any thoughts on that? Or or did, or did the thought yeah. ever cross your minds? I mean, is that is that something <laughs> you you would have been interested in? Yeah, I'm thinking um, about it. It's a good question. Yeah, that's Jordan. I mean, it's funny. I think you're you're absolutely right. We didn't really discuss it very much, either for or against. I think we were both thrilled when Laurel did offer a vignette because it really felt like it grounded the conversation in a way that you know it maybe took a bit of time to get there. But um, I suppose I mean there you know there's the reality of just the, the difficulty of sharing such sensitive information about young people. Um, I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And but I think it yeah. might also have to do with counter transference again, uh, because I think like the accounts that I have heard, not just read, but also heard in, in clinical discussions with colleagues, um, something very disconcerting tends to happen. Like, I, I, I'm not I don't know, like the, the anxiety that we've been talking about a lot uh, also now in our conversation, I think that really comes up in, in the consulting room. And it's. I think people tend to tend to act. People tend to do things. Like clinicians tend to do things in the consulting room with trans people that they would usually argue against doing. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. At least from my experience, and that in combination with the vulnerability that we talked about, I think that's explosive material. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. I mean, one other aspect that's just coming to mind is that, you know, the writing about gender and I think trans issues in particular within psychoanalysis often is at the edge between psychoanalytic thinking and say gender theory. Um, and that the, so the people who are also drawn to this tend maybe to also have a more theoretical, a bit more theoretical, abstract way of approaching it. I mean, just, as, I'm just, I mean, this is a, just a side, a side piece, but I do think just an affinity for the, for that level of discussion more so. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And that is, that is kind of one of the challenges of like, uh, trying to create a dialogue between people who might be more used to clinical thinking in the domain of the vignette versus 
people who have this, inter- you know, who, as you were saying, are kind of on the edge of gender theory, or that might be their main kind of area, that um, they are quite different, like, methodologies of, like, how you uh-huh. think about uh-huh. a problem. Uh-huh. I think also, I, I, I have... To... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Hannah. Oh, just my own, just I have my own reservations around published work on, you know, deep investigations of clinical cases in a published form, just in terms of, I mean, there's both, I think there's actual new privacy, speaking of laws <laughs> around it, but then also just, you know, it, it is such a tricky issue to figure out how to do that or w- in what form that makes sense and what the, you know, there's so much, there's so much in that around privacy uh, of work. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> It's a it's a conundrum, right? But I was thinking uh, with the with the um, vignette that that Laurel Silver was presenting. I mean, there's so much we don't know just because we we're not. I mean, we hear very little about we we hear some things about the case, but we we're not we're not interacting with the child. We're not we're not getting I don't know a protocol like a, a, a transcript of a session, for example. So we're not like this. This utterance, I mean, it takes on a world of meaning because it's abstract, right? It's abstract to us because we're not we're not there, we're not involved. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the best we can hope for in that kind of situation where there are limitations on the detail you can share is that it at least opens up, um, you know, new ways of listening for the person who engages with the material so that when they are in a clinical situation, if they work clinically, even if they haven't learned everything about the case, they have a different way of, of thinking and hearing than they did before. Right. I was I was wondering, um, sort of in closing, because we're already over the fifty minute mark. I was wondering about a point you were making towards the end of your introduction um, about, I guess, the the tension between uh, affirmation and neutrality. And you're actually you introduce a third <laughs> a third term, um, which could be acceptance, right? Um, as a as a clinical stance, I guess, on how to how to receive trans kids in the consulting room, but probably also how to think about them in in more public discussions. Um, could you say a, a bit about that? that tension and and the third term you're introducing acceptance and what what it could bring to to our discussions sure um i can say something and then jordan you can add whatever um you know i think it has to do with what we were talking about a little bit ago around how to both take someone's words seriously and be open to all possibilities within them in that um you know i I don't know if we're particularly committed to the term acceptance itself, but the, what we're what we were trying to get at was that um, you know with neutrality, what can um, come across or be sort of spoken as under the guise of neutrality can actually be a good deal of skepticism, um, right? So the way that uh, responding. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is something that Tobias points out very well around the ways that a kind of uh, certain kind of interpretive stance can communicate a good deal that doesn't feel particularly neutral around in relation to what a patient is saying. Um, 
and that acceptance, I, I think for me, one of my favorite definitions of neutrality is the acceptance of everything that a patient brings in and everything that a patient is. You know, it is a, it points to the receptivity that I think neutrality as a concept, in my mind, is supposed to get at, that, that the openness about it, the openness to everything without taking a stance on with one part of the patient, et cetera. So that's the way we are trying to differentiate between different positions that can be under um, under the term neutrality. And then in terms of affirmation on the other side, um, the reason we like the term acceptance versus affirmation is, is the ways that affirmation can be a kind of shoring up process. So back to the metaphor you were using between opening up versus closing down, um, that, that certain kinds of affirmation can seem to close down possibility as if this is, I mean, this is, uh, Eve makes this point, I think, in the discussion well and in her piece around the way that it can be a kind of, as if that's the end of the story, kind of period, right? As opposed to a positive engagement, but that also leaves open the possibility for what this unique individual means and all that they might mean in saying in saying the statement. So that, so those were the kinds of uh, what we were trying to point out as potential pitfalls as trying to have a stance of both, again, openness and seriousness or acceptance was, I think, the word that seemed to hold that, hold that for us. I don't know if you want to add to mm. that, Jordan. Um, I mean, I think I would just add, I learned a lot from our contributors about this uh, the idea of affirmation. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the signifier, I think, uh, largely is to do with, what, what in this conversation, was to do with um, this idea of the gender affirmative model of care. Um, and there were some very astute criticisms um, that the contributors, that some of the contributors made around the problems with this model in terms of, as Hannah was saying, this idea of it shoring up something rather than investigating, but also that it kind of presumes that underneath it all is some authentic gender identity that just needs to be uncovered and that this isn't a very psychoanalytic way of thinking about subjectivity. But um, Tobias, I think, made an important point as well, which is that if you live in a transphobic society or a society that's very hostile to gender diversity, um, perhaps the only way in which you can engage in a psychoanalytic process or a process of self-exploration is if something is affirmed, you know, as if there is a little support um, for you to hold on to, um, whether that's, you know, obviously your pronouns being recognized or maybe something a bit further than that um, as a way of, you know, engaging with this kind of process at all. So um, I think it was in sort of trying to navigate those different um, ways of thinking about the concept of affirmation that, that we landed on this idea of acceptance. Thanks very much for pointing that out. And I think, um, well, I, 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 I guess time will tell if it's going to be a useful term that that might, um, you know, be taken up by the psychoanalytic community. Uh, I, I definitely thought it was um, worth having a third term that's that's in between uh, in between this, this tension of neutrality and, and affirmation. It's always worth having a third, isn't it? <laughs> <It's a second>. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, we're all nearing the one hour mark. I wanted wanted to thank you very much for, for coming on today and, and talking with me. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion. 
And uh, I was just wondering if you had any uh, anything to add that we haven't touched and that you felt like was really um, important to to still still add to to our discussion. Uh, not particularly. I mean, I just want to say thank you, Sebastian, for such a thoughtful um, series of questions and for engaging with this with this special issue um, so thoroughly and, and um, with such great kind of care and attention. It was really nice to get to discuss it with you. And, and I hope um, it's not that long. <laughs> so I hope it encourages people to read it because we'd really yeah, love definitely. to hear um, listeners' thoughts on it. Yes, I'd really encourage the audience to to um, get the special issue and, and read it. It's a, a fascinating read and uh, something very new that's that's developing also as a method probably to to discuss uh, clinical and theoretical issues. So thanks very much for doing that. Yeah, I second all of that, and I guess just a final shout out to our contributors for and you know just thank them for doing this work of. Um, speaking with one another and to us about all of this and allowing us to to think more deeply in all of these ways um, in addition to thanking you Sebastian for having us here thank thank you very much and I hope we, we can continue this conversation in one way or another at some point thanks very much uh, catch you next time bye bye